Coming up on a special collaborative episode of Harvard Chan This Week in Health and Review of Systems, Gun Violence in the U.S., Perspectives from the Bedside and Public Health. 100 people a day are dying and 300 people are shot and it's not only the deaths, it's the spinal cord injuries to traumatic brain injuries, it's the fact that communities are being destroyed. In this episode, the toll of gun violence in America, from the trauma bay of our nation's ERs to the frenzied coverage of mass shootings, to the iceberg of suicide deaths by gun that account for most gun deaths in the U.S. but are woefully undercovered in the press and spark little public conversation. We'll also explore why we still know so little about gun violence in America. Early on in my career as a violence prevention researcher, I was very specifically told by multiple people to not talk about guns or firearms um, because there was no funding, but also because there was a fear that it would end one's career. Two experts on gun violence explain why firearms research is so rarely funded in the U.S. and how they are working to change that. This week, another collaborative episode between Harvard Chan, This Week in Health, the podcast from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, and Review of Systems, the podcast from the HMS Center for Primary Care. Each year in the U.S., more than 30,000 people are killed by guns, with two-thirds of those deaths being suicides, and there are tens of thousands of non-fatal injuries. In this week's episode, we're taking an in-depth look at gun violence, why we know so little about the toll of firearm injuries and deaths in the U.S., what researchers want to know, and how they are engaging gun owners and enthusiasts as key stakeholders in advocating for more research. Professional organizations for clinicians, such as the American College of Physicians, are encouraging primary care physicians to talk to patients about guns in their homes. And with the surge in activism around firearms after last year's Parkland shooting, the concept of gun violence as a public health issue has gained traction even outside of the public health community. So it's a perfect topic for clinicians and public health professionals to think about together. I'm Noah Levitt, host of Harvard Chan This Week in Health. And I'm Audrey Provenzano, a PCP and host of Review of Systems. We have two guests joining us this week. David Hemingway is a professor of public health policy at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and director of the Harvard Injury Control Research Center, where he focuses his teaching and research on injury prevention. We're also speaking via Skype with Megan Ranney, an associate professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at the Rhode Island Hospital Alpert Medical School of Brown University, a widely published researcher and chief research officer of a firm the American Foundation for Firearm Injury Reduction in Medicine, focused on funding firearm injury research. You can find more information about both of our guests on our websites. For a review of systems, go to hms.primarycare.edu and just click on podcast at the top of the page. And for This Week in Health, just go to hsph.me slash thisweekinhealth. But now let's dive into our conversation with Megan and David. So Megan, you're a practicing emergency physician. I thought maybe we could start with um, if you could tell us a story about a patient who was affected by gun violence and how that experience drew you into becoming a gun violence researcher. So as an emergency physician, I, like all of my colleagues, have hundreds uh, of stories of patients affected by gun violence. Uh, But one of the ones that has stayed with me, partly because of its um, uniqueness, um, but also because it highlights just the, the tragedy and the preventability, um, is, is a story of a young man who I took care of um, very early on in my career, uh, just after I became an attending. Um, it was 
uh, July 9th. So I've been in attending for all of a couple of weeks. Um, and uh, there was a call over uh, the EMS radio uh, that there was a trauma code coming in. And like we always do for trauma codes, we prepared, you know, got the trauma team down and the radiology techs um, gathered the med students and the full team. Um, and then EMS rolled in. And what we had expected um, was, was not at all what rolled through the door. It was uh, a young man um, who had been shot, um, but he had shot himself um, in the head and uh, was still alive, but barely. Um, and as the story progressed, um, it became, uh, we, we, we learned that he'd actually shot himself with his father's weapon. And one of the reasons why that story stays with me is because I remember his dad um, and the uh, utter kind of tragedy for, for that father and for that family um, of knowing that this kid had died, not just from a something preventable in general, a suicide attempt, but from something that was in their house and that this young man didn't necessarily have to have access to at that moment. And, and that was the moment when kind of my approach to gun violence changed um, because I started thinking about how many suicide attempts I see um, and how many of them I can save and how this young man was different um, and how we very rarely see folks that hurt themselves with a gun even make it to the doors of my ER. Um, I think it's really important for us to talk about all the types of gun violence and including community violence and, and domestic violence. Um, but those suicides really are the untold tragedy um, that affects folks across the United States. I think it's so powerful hearing you talk about suicides and gun violence because I think, David, you know, you've talked a lot about the the kind of role public health is in preventing not just gun violence in general, but firearm suicides. So can you talk a little bit about kind of how you first came to looking at firearms as a public health issue? And I guess similar to Megan, was there a particular story or a moment when you realized that this is where you wanted to focus? Um, so uh, to step back, in 1975, I came to teach at the Harvard School of Public Health. I had been teaching undergraduates uh, economics. And I just fell in love with the students. And I, they were my age. They really had a reason to be in school. I had something to teach them. And so I just tried to figure out how to stay in public health. And uh, at first, they had me doing uh, hospitals and doctors. And I wrote articles about how physicians respond to financial incentives. And I thought that was sort of silly because everybody <laughs> responds to financial incentives. Plumbers respond to financial incentives. And so I thought, is there something else I could do that would really make a difference? And uh, I had worked for Ralph Nader in the 60s and 70s. So I thought I, I could really do something about injury and violence prevention. And uh, two senior professors took me aside and said, A, uh, this is not really public health, and B, there's no money here, so you can't really do this. But fortunately for me, in 1985, uh, Injury in America came out, and basically this was an IOM report saying that injury and violence are huge public health problems and we really should be studying and looking at them, and CDC got some money, and so we were able to start doing research. Uh, in my career, I've always tried, I think, to, to focus on research areas which I thought were under-researched uh, because I thought I could make a big difference there. Uh, I hadn't quite recognized that the reason they are under-researched was because there often there's no money and no, and mm -hmm. no good data. Uh, but um, 
Injuries is still under research, but within injuries, uh, firearms is probably the most under research for the size of the problem. And so in 1990, I started writing a little about firearms, and I was just flabbergasted how little literature there was. And then I would hear uh, gun advocates say things, and I'd think, gee, that, that can't be right. And you know, what, is the, what does the science say? And I'd look, and there was no science at all. So I thought this is something that I could uh, really try to uh, improve our knowledge about what's happening in the world. So uh, I'd say the majority of my injury work now is about firearms. And I know we're going to talk about the, the, the lack of data in a few minutes, but um, just to kind of also kind of establish a background, I mean, I know you talk a lot about this idea of this public health approach to preventing gun violence. Right. So, so what is that public health approach? Yeah. So, so first, some people want to know why this is a public health problem. And it's that the, the clear answer is 100 people a day are dying and 300 people are shot. And it's not only um, the deaths, it's the, it's, it's, it's the spinal cord injuries to traumatic uh, brain injuries. It's the fact that communities are being destroyed because if there's a lot of street gun violence, people are afraid to go out at night, tourists don't come in, industry uh, leaves. Uh, and then the evidence is now overwhelming that exposure to violence uh, really leads, increases the risk of lifetime medical problems, both mental health problems and physical problems. So it's, it's a lifetime problem. Uh, the public health approach, uh, the reason I think it's important is because public health has been so successful in so many areas. And the public health approach, uh, if, if a one sentence description is try to make the world uh, so that it's really hard to get sick and injured and really easy to be healthy. Mm -hmm. um, and so what that means is for obesity, you try to make it so that it's uh, really easy to eat healthy foods and difficult to eat junk foods, and it makes it really easy to get good exercise and really hard to be a couch potato. And in the United States, we do just the opposite, and why are we surprised that uh, we have an obesity problem? Uh, so uh, the public health approach in part is stepping back, getting everyone to realize this is a big problem, and getting everybody to work together on that problem to try to prevent it. It's really about prevention. Uh, Medicine uh, talks about prevention, but 95% of the money is after the fact when something yeah. goes wrong. Uh, same way criminal justice uh, talks about deterrence, but all the money is, is really after something is a problem. In public health, it's all, all the focus is on prevention. What we've found is that typically, instead of waiting to the last clear chance to do something, it's so much more cost effective to go upstream and create a, an environment where it's hard to make mistakes and hard to behave inappropriately. And then if some people do, still nothing terrible, terrible happens. Uh, it's about populations rather than individuals. So if I go and talk to uh, psychiatrists, I might say, why do you think there's so many more suicides in Arizona than there are in Massachusetts, who are sort of the same size population. And if they're honest, they'll say, gee, that's interesting. We didn't know that. And, and the answer is, why should they? That's not their interest. Their interest is on individuals. Why in, you know, Jane feels depressed and how to reduce that depression. But public health is focused on the whole populations and trying to move the whole populations. And then if I try to get them, push them a little and say, well, what do you really think? They'll say things like it's, oh, um, you know, maybe it's the sun, maybe it's the immigrants, maybe it's they don't have enough psychiatrists, or whatever. And of course, what the real answer is, is it turns out to be virtually nothing to do with mental health. It's everything to do with 
firearms mm -hmm. and the, the uh, and you know just the story that Megan told mm -hmm. is is just uh, illustrative of that. Uh, and again, so what you're trying to do is create a good system so that people it makes it easy for people to behave well. So. Uh, the, the example which we always talk about is the motor vehicle example where 60 years ago the focus was always on the driver because if the drivers never made any mistakes, if they never behaved inappropriately, there'd basically be no traffic problem. But people are people and they get depressed and they get angry and they break the law and they get distracted and they're tired and they make mistakes. And what Public health understood is that the most cost-effective way of reducing injuries and <laughs> violence use of automobiles is to make the cars much safer, the roads much safer, the emergency medical system much safer. And so 60 years later, um, nobody thinks drivers are much better than when I was a little kid. Uh, but Fatalities per mile driven have fallen by about 85 percent, wow. one of the major success stories in public health, and there's so many success stories. So both of you have written and spoken about the dearth of data on firearm injuries, which we alluded to um, a little bit. Um, and you know, David also alluded to this issue of insufficient funding for this kind of research. You know, there's a really involved kind of backstory about why this <clears throat> why this is in the United States involving the Dickey Amendment. Um, I, I wonder if, David, you can briefly tell us a little bit about what that amendment is and how it's affected your ability to perform research. And Yes. So, so let me first talk about the data. Sure. Because the, in, in this area, not only are not a lot of data are, not, are deliberately not collected, but then a lot of data which are collected are deliberately withheld from researchers. Mm -hmm. So it's really hard. So for example, we, we don't really know how many people are shot every year in the United States. We don't know if that's been going up or going down because we don't have a good data system. We, I, have, I cannot tell you how many people were shot unintentionally in the United States or in, in Nevada or any place um, because we don't have a good data systems. Uh, I can't tell you how many, what percent of households have guns in most states in Montana. I don't know. Uh, uh, Twelve years ago, the Centers for Disease Control used to collect that information. They used to have a very tiny module on it, the big behavioral risk factor surveillance system, and that got eliminated. So we can't find out. We don't know how people are storing their guns. Uh, and then the data which are collected, uh, there are data about gun tracing. We can't get that data, so we can't. I can't really tell you very much about um, uh, the types of stores where criminals in Massachusetts are getting their guns, even though that data are available. They're just not available to researchers, and we can't get that. Uh, same way, I can't tell you very much about who has concealed carry permits and really how are they doing and where are there problems or not, not problems. Um, in terms of the research dollars, uh, the Dickey Amendment. People think it it's, uh, prevents the CDC from funding research, and it doesn't. The Dickey Amendment is just a symbol. All the Dickey Amendment says is that no money that CDC or any other federal agency gives can be used to promote gun control. But every researcher understands that no money that the government gives can be used to lobby 
That's mm -hmm. always the case. But what this amendment does is says that it's just the signal that says for every researcher and particularly for the CDC, you give money about gun research, for ungun research, we are going to haul you in front of Congress and we are going to not only berate you, but we are going to cut your budget. And they have done this in the past. And so like a battered woman who doesn't have to be beaten every time, CDC understands uh, that they should stay out of this area, and so they do. I go to meetings uh, about gun violence, and people at CDC don't ever want to say the word firearms or guns in a public forum. Uh, if I talk to any uh, my friends at CDC, uh, if we end up talking ever about guns, they will say, wait a second, let me call you back from my cell phone, and they will go out in the parking lot and talk to me about guns from the parking wow. lot. And then just to add on to that, not only that is that then also there's been a generation of researchers who were very specifically told that this was a topic to not look into. I mean, I was told. So part of what I do is influenced very much by David um, and, and his work. Um, but early on in my career as a violence prevention researcher, I was very specifically told by multiple people to not talk about guns or firearms. Um, because there was no funding, but also because there was a fear that it would end one's career. And, and you see the ripple effect of those little private conversations across the country. Um, when you look at the number of publications and the number of uh, people who've published more than once or twice on firearm injury, really the, the number is staggeringly low. Um, there's a group of somewhere between five and 10 researchers across the country of whom David is one. Um, who's persistently been working in this area despite the lack of federal funding. Um, and the number of publications around firearm injury prevention dropped precipitously after that Vicky Amendment, which is, David says, didn't actually ban research, mm -hmm. um, but essentially stopped the field cold, really had a chilling effect. And, and as a result, the state of the science around firearm injury prevention is largely where it was in 1996. And so although the vast majority of the public health approach and firearm injury prevention truly has nothing to do with, quote unquote, gun control, it's about those larger public health approaches that David described. It's about making people's relationships with guns safer, just as we've made cars and people's relationships with cars and patterns of driving safer. We have been unable to make that progress um, for firearms. Um, there's been no uh, motivation, no funding to do the really rigorous research um, that's needed. Again, with a couple of very small exceptions, um, of whom David is one. And I guess either Megan or David, I mean, how how do you kind of operate in this funding environment? Where, how do you manage to get around it? And I guess, do you see even, is there even a small change in things in the wake of Par Parkland, for example? Um, yeah, in, in the last year since Parkland, there's been uh, a... Uh, some change. We've seen now two states, uh, New Jersey and California, who are funding some research, which is really good. We're, we're seeing uh, a number, a uh, couple of more foundations. Foundations also have not funded in this area very much. They also have been uh, really afraid because why take the hassle that they're going to get if they fund in this, in this area. Uh, so there's been a little more uh, funding, um, but it's still very, very, very small. It's like it, we have two epsilon as opposed to one epsilon. I mean, it's not, it's not like it. So it's doubled maybe, but it's still very, very small. Uh, and it, it's been hard. We, we, you know, live hand to mouth. Um, we, uh, our little group of four researchers, we have no 
basically support. We get money uh, from some foundations, a couple of found brave foundations uh, give us money. We've gotten money uh, you know, from, we do a lot of research about suicide. We've got money from the, uh, uh, interestingly, from the state of Utah to look at suicide, which is, which is great. Um, you know, we, we, the National Institute of Justice has a little bit of money. We got money to look at uh, police killings. Uh, and so, but it's, it's really, you know, year to year, we're just hanging on. So, hey, if anyone wants to send money, this is the place. <laughs> uh, so, Megan, you actually started an organization called AFFIRM, which stands for the American Foundation for Firearm Injury Reduction and in Medicine. Uh, you can find their website at affirmresearch.org. Um, so how did that come about and, and why did you end up starting your organization? That came about um, because of very much what we've just been discussing. Um, really uh, after uh, Sandy Hook, um, a number of us in medicine started to gather together and say, you know, this is crazy. We've been told for two decades that we can't talk about guns, but we see every day uh, in our practice, um, the direct and the ripple effects of gun violence. So we people see people who've been injured. We see people suffering from those long-term effects of those injuries. And then we see the effects on communities um, and, and all the ways that um, the fear uh, of, of gun violence affects um, kind of the greater public and, and what we see in our offices and, and ERs and operating rooms. And it's just crazy that we can't apply this public health approach that we've used for every other epidemic. And, you know, as we started to have this discussion, many of us um, thought, well, the, the answer is, is to um, testify before our uh, congressional representatives and, you know, they'll see the light and they'll understand that doing research is not the same thing as advocacy, that it really is about applying a public health approach. And you know what, that we'll, we'll get that federal funding um, for this research. And then <laughs> year after year passed and we said, actually, the funding is not coming. And meanwhile, we have, you know, approximately 100 people dying a day and approximately two to 300 being injured every day across the United States. And P.S., those numbers are going up year after year. Mm -hmm. And so we can keep waiting for someone else to do something or we can do something ourselves. Um, and that was the really driving force behind um, founding a firm with this knowledge that we had uh, the, truly the collective will of, of medicine and of healthcare um, saying it's time for us to do something, uh, something nonpartisan and nonpolitical, but something to help our patients um, and to help us as clinicians to, to stop this epidemic. Um, and again, recognizing that uh, it was time to start creating alternative funding sources. Um, our purposes are really twofold. Um, one is to join uh, healthcare professionals together, nurses, doctors, social workers, uh, to provide them with the best possible tools based off of the limited existing evidence so that we in the healthcare space can have uh, an effect um, on uh, this epidemic, you know, for our high-risk patients who are high-risk of suicide or homicide or domestic violence, that we can help them to avoid an injury, and then to help spur the research. Um, you know, as David says, the, the funding rate right now is so low that anything um, makes a difference, and we're proud to be working in partnership with the American Medical Association, American College of Physicians, ASAP, uh, American College of Surgeons, AAP, and many other groups. Um, to be really restarting this funding um, 
both within specialties and also uh, on a larger um, national scale. Uh, it's not enough, um, but we're excited to have the public and healthcare professionals working together um, to help change this conversation, um, to bring into play many of the things that uh, David is talking about and has worked so hard on for so many years, um, to help spread that to folks that may not have heard um, his message and the utter reasonableness of it. Um, you know, half of our, approximately half of our advisory board are gun owners. We don't see this as a us versus them issue, right? Most gun owners are safe. Um, but the question is, how do you help the folks that maybe temporarily are not safe for themselves or others? And uh, how do you help ensure um, that the chance of injury is lower? David, you spoke a few minutes ago about kind of all these kind of things you don't know. Um, I mean, ultimately, what, what resources do you need in order to do the research that you think needs to be done? And are there any, I guess, are there any policy changes that you'd hope to see at the CDC or you know elsewhere at the government level? Yeah. So, so there's so many things that government can do to try to reduce this problem. And people focus on government as a uh, legislative branch that passes laws. And there's no question we should have universal background checks in the United States and that virtually everybody agrees every other developed country has them and doesn't have our problems. And we should probably ban uh, certain assault weapons and so forth. But there's so many other things government can do. So for example, government collects data and it doesn't collect nearly enough data in this area compared to other areas. Government uh, provides money for research and does its own research and it doesn't do nearly enough in this area. Government writes standards. The reason we have fire-safe cigarettes in the United States, one of the big reasons is the government wrote a standard for fire-safe cigarettes and then states adopted that standard. Without that standard, states could not write the laws. Uh, government is an enormous buyer. What government buys really matters. Uh, the reason we have airbags in cars, one of the big reasons is that the government bought thousands of cars with airbags. They were the first cars with airbags on the road and they showed that airbags really work. Government could be the first buyer of smart guns, for example. Uh, government is a big informer. Government provides information to people. Uh, so for example, what I would like to see, I would like to see a Surgeon's General report about uh, guns and suicide. The evidence is overwhelming about the relationship between guns and suicide. I'd like to have GAO have a report about guns. Uh, 30, 25 years ago, they did a report about unintentional firearm deaths, and they haven't done much since. Uh, I'd like to hear hearings, see hearings about firearms, which we haven't seen at the federal level in many, many years. So there, there are just so many things that uh, the government can do, and those, I guess, are policy changes or programmatic changes, but, but there's so much more. I mean, I think laws should be passed, but there's so many more things the government can do. So. One area of tension in the conversations we've been having about gun violence over the last couple of years is the contrast and reaction that we sometimes see in shootings that affect predominantly Caucasian communities, for example, Sandy Hook or Parkland, although, um, for example, Sandy Hook or Parkland, um, versus the gun violence that affects minority communities that may be affected more heavily and are less covered by the media. So, David, I know you've done some research specifically on the inequity of firearm-related assaults in various communities. 
Can you talk a little bit about what the data shows about how different communities are affected? Yeah, in the United States, there's no question that uh, minority communities, particularly in, in urban areas, are incredibly disproportionately affected by gun violence, particularly street uh, gun violence. Uh, and we as a society have not done very much about that, which is just terrible. Uh, you should recognize, though, that even sort of whites in the United States still have something like four times the rate of homicide compared to anybody in any other developed country. So yes, uh, this is uh, disproportionately an African-American problem in terms of assaults and homicides, but it's also very much a white problem. If, if, uh, it's, it's also true that suicide is not an African-American or a Hispanic problem. It is a white problem, and most deaths not shootings, but most deaths are, are suicides. So we have a very disproportionately, it's incredible. If you look across the United States in terms of deaths, uh, it doesn't vary that much between urban and rural areas because in rural areas you have, you have suicides mm. and in urban areas you have homicides. Mm. Now, one of the things about the mass shootings is yes, they, they, are not, they are just the tip of the iceberg. They are not the major problem in terms of firearms uh, in the United States. But in all countries, the, the mass shootings are the ones that get publicity because it's so unusual or used to be so unusual and, and so many people are dying all at once. So that is a time when people can consider and talk about the issue. And so in other countries when there's mass shootings, when there's a mass shooting in Australia and Tasmania, uh, they talked about it and they changed their laws uh, to try to reduce the problem and seemingly have been quite successful. Uh, in Scotland, uh, when there's the Dunblane killings, uh, that was a time they immediately started talking about this issue and then they made changes. And so what the mass shootings in the United States do is they give us an opportunity uh, to focus our attention on this problem and do something. We haven't, in, until really the Parkland shootings, we haven't done very much about that. And at the same time, we're focusing on that. We should be focusing on the entire the, the, the bottom of the iceberg, which is 90% of the mm. problem, mm. which is um, the suicide problem, the gun accident problem, the, um, the problems of uh, uh, gun assaults and homicides, and, and then even uh, the intimate partner pro violence problems mm -hmm. of, of guns being used to intimidate. Yeah, I, I think it's a really important um, point to bring up, and, and I very much appreciate that David highlighted um, what I often say when I give uh, talks around this, which is that really the deaths are by and large a white problem that are also uncovered uh, by the media. Mm -hmm. And I make the analogy often that the firearm suicide um, death patterns are in some ways similar to opioid deaths, that there's something that affects um, rural, uh, lower middle class uh, white men um, across the country and, and is unaddressed. Um, there are a lot of social determinants of health that go into all forms of firearm injury and death, whether we're talking about um, injuries and deaths uh, in cities or in rural areas. And I think uh, attention needs to be paid to both. And what I sometimes hear is that some folks dismiss um, the gun violence that happens in cities, in cities as being a purely criminal justice issue, when it absolutely is not. It has such a deep relationship, just as the suicide deaths in, do in rural areas, to a lot of the economic and mental health and, uh, again, kind of social issues um, that lead 
people both to access firearms and to use them. And when we talk about these disparities and these inequities, I think once again, it highlights the importance of taking this public health approach. A criminal justice or punitive approach will not work to stop suicide and it will not work to stop community violence. Um, there is, again, a portion of this which is going to be based on policy, uh, but very few public health problems have been solved exclusive through, exclusively through policy. I mean, heck, look at, look at the uh, battle that we're fighting right now around vaccines, um, changing public consciousness and attitudes and uh, behavior is equally critical. And um, for firearm injury of all types, um, it's important to understand the communities that are affected and the underlying reasons um, why these injuries are occurring. And Megan, to, to jump off of that, I imagine like an important factor in this is um, kind of, as, as you spoke about a minute ago, kind of engaging firearm owners and gun rights advocates as key stakeholders. I mean, you mentioned that the, the board of a firm is, you know, has gun owners on it. Um, I know you've, you've looked at this. You did a study looking at online comments from gun rights advocates, kind of analyzing their reaction to having a doctor ask them about gun violence. Um, so from, from your perspective as, as a physician, why is partnering with gun owners and advocates so crucial to, as you said, kind of this idea of changing the conversation, changing kind of the, the public dialogue ar around firearms? So I think it's absolutely critical because uh, – for, for a number of reasons. So the first thing is uh, we wouldn't talk about bicycle safety or motorcycle safety um, without talking to people who ride bikes or motorcycles, right? It is essential to um, understand uh, the reasons why people own guns and how most gun owners are safe. Um, I also uh, strongly believe that demonizing approximately 40% of the United 30 to 40% of the United States is the wrong way to go about solving a public health problem. Um, we need all hands on deck to find solutions to this. And when we make this an us versus them debate, we essentially uh, shut down the possibility for forward motion. Um, there's no way that we are going to solve this problem um, through uh, one side shouting down the other. And, and I say that to both sides of the conversation. Um, this has to be something where we come together. And when you look at the physician community, the physician community, like that of the United States in general, uh, surveys, again, are not great, but uh, somewhere between 30 and 40% of docs um, own a gun. Many of them own it because they like to hunt or they engage in shooting sports. Um, and some live in rural areas and own them uh, because the police are two or three hours away. And for them, it's a form of protection. Maybe uh, they have a farm or um, know that they're not uh, going to have easy access to, to public uh, safety. Um, we need to engage those folks because they are in some ways the strongest messengers um, around the importance of talking to high-risk patients. Um, and, and helping us to, to start to make a dent in this epidemic. Um, and I really kind of highlight the work that I do with some of my colleagues. And you mentioned the paper that I worked on um, that was with uh, Emmy Betts, who's at the University of Colorado, uh, who's been a great partner uh, in this work. And so what are, what are some of those conversations like with gun owners, whether, I mean, in your work through a firm or, you know, even as your work in a physician, I mean, how, how do you kind of, how do you engage them in, in a way that's productive? Right. And so I think it's, first of all, getting rid of the kind of us versus them. Mm -hmm. that, um, 
we are all have the same end goal, which is keeping people safe and healthy and uninjured. And so then starting to talk about the ways in which that can happen. We're actually going to be uh, leading a workshop at the Society for Academic Emergency Medicine uh, in May in Las Vegas, um, talking about exactly this, of how do you have these conversations in a way that's non-judgmental? You know, we spend a lot of time in med school um, learning about how to ask people about uh, drinking and sexual orientation and uh, drug use in ways that uh, permit patients to be honest with us and that um, create the chance of uh, a teachable moment um, and of safe behavior. We've never taught physicians how to do that around firearms. It is truly essential. Um, we need to create trust with our patients that we're asking them about firearm access, not to take away firearms, not to condemn or lecture them, but to keep them and their families safe. And recognizing that for many firearm owners, in fact, probably most, they are owning and storing them in ways that are safe. And so then it's making sure that they are aware of ways in which there may be moments where they or their family are not safe. And again, I come back to that story I told at the beginning, where had that dad understood that his son being in the throes of depression was perhaps a time to temporarily store his firearm out of the house, perhaps that boy would still be alive today. And those are the types of conversations that we have to have and that we can't have um, again, without engaging um, all uh, physicians and, and honestly, all Americans. And that segues well, David, because I wanted to ask, because I know you and your team, uh, Kathy Barber particularly, have worked with gun owners extensively in the area of suicide prevention, particularly in New Hampshire and Utah. Can you explain the work you've been doing and what's the reaction from gun owners? What, what's that been like? Yeah, so, so again, it really, Kathy Barber really has taken the lead on this and she, she's been great in, in New Hampshire. Uh, she and others uh, in the public health community have worked with gun shops. Uh, and uh, what they've done is, is they've gotten gun shops to be really interested in suicide prevention because occasionally, not the biggest part of the suicide problem, but occasionally people who are depressed go to a gun shop, buy a gun, and kill themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, and c gun shops can play a role and would like to play a role in trying to reduce this problem. It's no, nobody wants someone to come into their shop and buy a gun and two hours later to be dead. Uh, and so uh, in New Hampshire, uh, over half of the gun shops now have materials and, and some training about how to prevent someone who's clearly suicidal, uh, how to get them help rather than give them a gun. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is now, there are 20 states where uh, gun shops are involved in this suicide prevention wow. approach. Uh, in Utah, Kathy went out and talked to uh, the gun trainers there. Utah is really the gun training capital of the world. Uh, and she talked to uh, the gun trainers who do concealed carry. And she asked them, she said, you know, you're doing such a good job trying to reduce gun accidents, but did you realize that in Utah for every accidental gun death, there are 70 gun suicides? Oh and they, they didn't know that. And you know, they know about guns, but we know about populations and data. Uh, and she said, you know, raise your hand if you know someone who unintentionally killed themselves with a gun, and a few hands go up. And they said, raise your hand if you know somebody personally who killed themselves with a firearm, and every hand goes up. Because these are all middle-aged white guys who, you know, love guns. And, 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 um, and she said, well, what if we, you know, could we work together to try to, you know, reduce this problem? Could we create a module, for example, for your gun training class where you talked about suicide? Because none of them were talking about suicide at all. They're talking about gun accidents. 
Um, and they said, sure, let's work together. And they created this module and together, and they love it. It's such a good good module. And then she said, you know, how, how do we get other trainers to, to, how can we convince them that this is important to be discussing? And, and they said, we don't have to convince everybody. We know all the legislators in Utah. We'll make it mandatory. So now it's mandatory that in gun training classes in Utah for concealed carry, there's a module about suicide. And That's what the great. module basically says is that as friends don't let friends drive drunk, you as a good friend should know that if your friend is going through a bad patch, he's just getting divorced and he's drinking and he's talking crazy, that he should know and you should know that's a social norm is that you babysit his gun for a while until he gets a new girlfriend and things are fine and then he gets the gun back. Because so many suicides are pretty transitory. It's, it doesn't like, I've, you know, I've decided that no matter what happens for the next 100 years, so I'm going to kill myself and, and if, if I ever get the chance. No, you get over these things and if you can just get through this period. Uh, and so the key thing is, is, is just to you know, re-emphasize all the things that Megan was saying is that the public health approach is about getting everybody together to work on this. That's how you really get success. Uh, and the message matters and to get the right message you have to talk to the people who understand how to get the message. We, you know, we've talked to them and said, oh, maybe we should say this. And they say, no, no, you can't say this. You have to say it this way. And I think, isn't that exactly what we just said? And, and they say, no, 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 it's, not, it's different. Uh, and so, okay. And then it's, it's not only the message, but the messenger is the most important because everyone lives in their own tribes. And if somebody from the outside says you should do something, they're not going to believe it. But if somebody who they trust says, boy, this is really important, we should be doing this, then it's of course that then you can have a real effect. So would you, would you guys define yourselves as researchers and advocates um, or just researchers? How do you manage the uh, perception of maybe being biased, uh, just you know, given how complex this issue is in the United States? Megan, do you want to start? Sure. So I, this is a great question. Uh, just this morning, I was talking to someone who came into the meeting assuming um, that when I talk about gun violence, that what I am trying to say is gun control. And so spent the first half of the meeting talking about how that is not true. Um, I think that the, um, the societal perception, again, right now is that you are on one side or the other. And I think a lot of time that David and I both spend is talking about how the public health approach is, is really neither. It's about finding truth and about finding best possible solutions. Just like Ralph Nader was not for or against cars, he was for car safety, mm -hmm. right? And got car manufacturers to put seatbelts in place and really helped transform um, what was then an epidemic of car crash deaths. Um, similarly, uh, same thing here. And, and I think one of our biggest tasks in the short term is making it very clear that we are researchers. Am I an advocate? I'm an advocate for public health. Um, I'm an advocate for research. I'm an advocate for using evidence to make decisions. Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of evidence right now, so I'm an advocate for gathering evidence first. Um, and, and when folks accuse me of being biased, I, I welcome them to, to sit down and talk with me. Um, and it is tremendously rare that after a conversation, folks um, who associate with either side of the political spectrum come away uh, still thinking that I'm biased. Most folks kind of understand by the end of the conversation where um, where I'm coming from and, and really the fact that this is a different path forward than the one that we've been uh, stuck in for an awfully long time here in the United States. 
Um, I, I would uh, agree with that. I, I think I'm a researcher of uh, virtually 100% because I don't think I'd be a very good advocate. I don't, <laughs> trained in advocacy, I've been trained a lot in research. Um, I, I really believe in what the science says or doesn't say, and, and I agree with Megan. There's so much stuff we need to know that we don't know, but there are a few. Th there are some things we really do know, and one of the things is that uh, having a gun in the home really in increases the risk for suicide. I think we are at a point where uh, we have better evidence now about guns and suicide than the Surgeon General had in the 1950s when they talked about uh, cancer and cigarettes. Um, I, I, uh, I, you know, as an economist, I believe in specialization and the division of labor. And my specialization is research. That's what I was trained to do, and so that's what I try to do. And, and it's whatever the science says, and it shouldn't be what your predilections say, because what the goal is to try to uh, make the world safer. And if the evidence was there that stand your ground laws really helped, so be it. Then we ought to have stand your ground laws. If the evidence was that. Um, having a, uh, ha having easy access to assault weapons made it people safer than I'd be for physicians advocating for people to get assault weapons. But that's not currently what the, the limited evidence seems to indicate. The evidence seems to indicate quite, quite, quite the opposite. And it's not like even close. It's not like, well, we're not really sure. Uh, the current evidence is very, very strongly that um, sort of the more guns, the more gun problems and the more deaths. Um, so, so we're going to end with a little bit of a conversation about this kind of internet event that I think is actually what sparked uh, this podcast idea. I, you know, Audrey reached out to me. Um, this was towards the end of 2018, and the American College of Physicians had put out this guidance around gun violence and counseling patients, and the NRA tweeted that, you know, quote, self-important physicians should stay in their lane. Uh, just after that, there was another mass shooting in California, and this hashtag erupted on Twitter, hashtag this is our lane, um, and it was a lot of doctors sharing stories like Megan had about caring for patients who have been victims of gun violence. Um, so now Megan, you and some of your colleagues actually published a perspective piece about this whole phenom phenomenon in the New England Journal of Medicine. So um, what did you find and what do you think that kind of whole internet, Twitter, viral conversation told us about the role of social media um, related to gun violence and, and, and public health in general? So I think that we are at a different moment um, in uh, the United States and in the world, um, where folks uh, traditionally were consumers of media, and now they're also creators of media. Um, the response that we saw on Twitter to This Is Our Lane really reflected the years of work um, that we've been doing to talk about gun violence as a public health problem and the frustration of physicians that they haven't been able to do that. Um, but that moment also reflected the fact that Twitter is there and really uh, is a form of, uh, I'm going to use the word new power, um, which has been um, used by Henry Timms from the 92nd Street Y and Jeffrey Hyman from um, Australia. Um, the idea that communities can come together and create a voice and a movement just like was done for Time's Up um, or other uh, kind of movements um, across the world. This is one of those. Um, this is a healthcare professional saying, again, regardless of our political affiliations, that this is an issue that we need to talk about. Um, and, and the role of us on social media um, is not, and, and in spreading this voice is not gonna go away. Um, I think that social media allows us to coalesce and amplify each of those individual voices um, in a really um, new and different way. And I'm 
honored to have been able to be um, a part of leading that. Um, you know, we at a firm created a letter that was uh, published in, in USA Today with over 40,000 um, physician signatures over a course of you know, four or five days. Um, that would not have been possible five years ago. Um, and, and I really, uh, it's it's really thanks to, to social media um, and, and that kind of online presence and community um, that that exists. The one thing that I was going to say, I actually did want to follow up though on David's comment, um, which is for better or for worse, we do have to recognize that um, there are 330 million guns in circulation in the United States. And um, we need to work with that. Um, we can't pretend that that's going to go away. And so we need to create new solutions um, that keep people safe with those guns being present. Um, and sometimes being in the present present in hands that may not be safe. Again, most people that own guns are perfectly safe, but some aren't. And I think that this social media conversation has engendered some really important conversations um, among people who, again, you might think of as being on, on opposite sides of this political spectrum, who have come together to talk about ways that we can enhance the safety of our communities, of our patients, of our families, of our children, um, while also recognizing the unique political realities of the United States. And David, I'd be interested to have your perspective on this. We were talking before the interview began that you, you, you had a chance to meet, for example, with the Parkland students who have used social media so effectively. So kind of what's your view on, on the role of social media in, in moving this conversation forward? Um, you know, not, not being a big social media person, <laughs> is I, I think it's incredible. I mean, I think this is so important. Uh, I, I do think that there's no question that the Parkland kids have made a big difference. And, and because of social media, they would not, without social media, they would not have been able to do it. And I, I love them saying that, uh, you know, their parents always saying, why are you on social media? And then, then they said, this is why. Because now we know how to use this, which, which we're not, we weren't going to be able to learn in school from older folks. Um, w one of the things I, I would emphasize, too, is that from Megan's discussions about now, you know, physicians organizing and making their presence felt is really so important. Um, uh, on the other hand, just as a little bit of, uh, I would also say as a, um, an economist, I really do believe in following the money. And while you know, these um, physicians en masse are doing, are doing, I think, really important and useful things, pushing the agenda uh, of trying to create that this is a public health problem and we can, as a society can do something about it. Uh, the, uh, uh, as, as Mike Siegel at Boston University has been pointing out, the physicians' organizations, uh, where is their money going? And it's typically going to support Congress people who are really anti the public health approach and mm. anti trying to increase the amount of research uh, in this in this area. And so you have to, uh, I think, not only applaud physicians organizing together, but you have to also look at the physicians associations and who these physicians are giving money to uh, that they are working at incredible cross purposes. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and one, I think, is trying to reduce the problem and the other, uh, unfortunately, is not. Uh, in, in, I wrote this book a, a, a number of years ago about success stories in injury and violence prevention. And there's 64 documented successes. I could have written about another 64. Uh, but in all of them, uh, it took a long time. People had to push and push, but there are always people and institutions against it. Mm 
Mm. And it's just incredible. How could you be against this? How could you be against preventing people, you know, little kids from getting a hockey puck in their eye? Uh, but people are. And, you, and there is, even though it shouldn't be us versus them, there is a struggle. And there are, you want to get the overwhelming majority of people pushing, but to recognize that there will always be uh, a force against uh, uh, progressive, useful change to save lives. David, I hear you. And uh, gosh, I've, I've taught your book. Uh, so I, I love it. Um, I have it sitting on my shelf. I'm, I'm looking across my office right at it uh, as I do this podcast. Um, but I am also an eternal optimist. And I think we've seen time and time again across history, as illustrated in your book, um, that when you get the majority of the public um, and again, the private sector, and when you get the majority of the data on board, and when you mobilize public opinion, um, you can create change. And I am confident that we are at one of those moments um, where we are coming together uh, increasingly as a nation in a way that I have not seen. Um, again, David's been in this field longer than I, but it's been over a decade that I've been working in violence prevention. And I have never had the kind of optimism and hope that I have right now um, that we are at the cusp of changing the way that we approach this problem um, and, and really creating a way forward um, that is workable and that is um, going to be effective. Um, and I think that podcasts like this are part of that. Um, I think uh, kind of getting folks to sit down and talk to each other, again, across those partisan divides is part of how we create on that forward motion and uh, changing the way that physicians talk to patients is part of that conversation and changing the way that the public talks to other people in the public is also part of that conversation. And I think um, I, I, the, the history of public health shows um, that those conversations all make a difference. And so I thank you guys for um, having this podcast and allowing us to have this conversation and um, to help move the field forward and, and help move public health forward. You've been listening to a very special episode of Review of Systems, the podcast from the HMS Center for Primary Care, and This Week in Health, the podcast from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Once again, I'm Audrey Provenzano. And I'm Noah Levitt. If you enjoy the show, please rate, review, and subscribe to both of our shows wherever you listen. It helps others find the show and share us on social media and with your friends and colleagues. We'd love to hear feedback and suggestions, so you can tweet us at RS Podcast or at HMS Primary Care or at Harvard Chan SPH. Thanks for listening.